Thanks, Andy. Thank you. It's really nice to be back here at Monty and uh, love your new house. Can't wait to see the finished product. <clears throat> back in about 2000, <clears throat> a guy, you may remember the name, Kevin Gosper, he was the head of the uh, Aussie Olympic Committee, said these words, and I quote, The manifest religion in this country is sport, not Christianity. In terms of daily lives, investment, preoccupation in the newspapers. Donald Horne, who wrote The Lucky Country, said this, Sport to many Australians is life and the rest a shadow. When we qualified for the World Cup, I think we beat Uruguay as I recall. I watched the SBS game on TV and the exuberant commentator said this and I quote and I wrote it down. All the crowd sang from the same hymnal. The CEO of Soccer Australia pronounced the benediction. The crowd were worshipping their heroes. It was, and I quote, a defining moment in our national life. I don't know maybe Federation might be a defining moment. Gallipoli, Kylie Minogue's first number one single might be a defining moment in our national life but making the World Cup defines us as a nation? Uh, in the age some years ago, well before he died, Peter Roebuck of course before he died uh, wrote this Sundays used to be spent listening to solemn sermons <laughs> told by men with long faces uh, <laughs> Shops were shut and children wore ties and collars. Now the masses went not to church but to the cricket. Spent their Sabbaths watching some bloke called Simo whack the ball to the boundary. A while ago on the ABC they had a short between two programs. The short was of Bradman Oval and Barrel. The music was from Handel's Messiah. The words, the Lord our God, omnipotent reigneth. The implication was clear, the Don is God. When he died some years ago, the Don, they had a whole bunch of obituaries in the the Herald in Sydney, but one obituary said this about Bradman. In common with God, according to an old philosophical proof of his existence, Bradman was something that which nothing greater can be conceived. End of quote. I've been here in Melbourne seven years. I love Melbourne, but I'm still aghast at the fact that this city takes a four-day break to watch a three-minute horse race. I I cannot comprehend that. Uh, Folk who have no concern at all in horse racing suddenly for one day become madly keen. The race is over and they forget about it for another year. well, God said, Mike, what are you speaking on today? I thought, I'll do Daniel 3, not realising it was the Sunday after the Melbourne Cup. But how divinely coincidental. A, a passage about idolatry, the Sunday after we've worshipped at one of our great shrines in Melbourne, Flemington. So let's think about, with that as our background, think about this marvellous story from Daniel chapter 3 of shake the bed, make the bed to bed we go, and the fiery furnace. 
it's the, the setting is Babylon, as you may, as you'll know, Babylon. It's after uh, the city of Jerusalem has been destroyed. They're, they're in exile in Babylon. It's about 550 BC, and Nebuchadnezzar is the king. And frankly, he is a very nasty piece of work. You may not like Julia, or Tony, or Ted, but read Daniel and be very thankful. Okay, uh, he appeared in, in chapter two. The, 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 he had a vision of the, a dream of the rise and fall of empires. He called his men together to interpret the dream. They couldn't. He wanted to tear them apart limb from limb. He was a narcissistic tyrant, a bully, self-obsessed, a very unpleasant man. Don't cross Nebuchadnezzar. Well, that's the, that's the background to the, to the story. Chapter 3, he built this massive idol about 90 feet high, made probably one of the gods of Babylon. Maybe of himself, but probably a god in Babylon. And when the band strikes up the anthem, you know, advanced Babylon fair, you're all meant to bow down and worship this idol because then and now what you've got here isn't just religion this is religion and politics entwined together you often get that back in 1936 a guy called Balder von Schirach said this 1936 Germany he said this one cannot be a good German and at the same time deny God but an arousal of faith in the eternal German is at the same time an arousal of faith in the eternal God. Whoever serves Adolf Hitler serves Germany and whoever serves Germany serves God. Faith, religion, politics intertwined. Bow before Hitler, bow before God. I worked for 11 years in Pakistan and my friend there was a guy, an army captain called uh, Mahmoud and we met together on and off for cups of chai and curries and I gave him a Bible, he gave me the Quran. We talked for three years about our faith. Then one day he asked me, he asked me the question. He said, Michael, if I were to become a Christian, would I have to give up Muhammad? And I said, yes, you would. And I'll never forget his reply. He said to me, I could never do that. Now he wasn't a devout Muslim, didn't pray I don't think five times a day or go to Mecca. But you see for him, as for most Pakistanis, to be a Muslim is to be a Pakistani. He's an army captain. I say to him, not just give up your faith, give up, your, give up everything. Give up your culture, your country, your heritage, your family, your history, your everything. The two are intertwined. He said, I could never do that. So the call here on the threat of death is to worship the idol and prove you're truly faithful to Babylon. I read a while ago that in Eastern Europe anti-Semitism is at the highest level since World War II. It's a pernicious prejudice. Well, here we have some Chaldeans, some astrologers, who see this command as a chance to get rid of some uh, pesty Jews who've risen to heights of power in Babylon. Because isn't that always the, the offence of Jews? This small group have a power, a wealth, an authority far beyond what their numbers would warrant, and it leads to hatred? Well, that's what happens here. They inform the king of some rebels in the camp who won't bow. The king has again a temper tantrum. 
And now the stage is set for one, I think, of the great dramatic scenes of the Bible, one of the great confrontations of this very potent, powerful discourse. You've got there the threat and the confession. Here again the threat. But if you don't worship it, you'll immediately be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. And who is the God who can rescue you from my power? And then the great confession. This is worth putting on a plaque on your wall. This is sensational. If the God we serve exists, then he can rescue us from the furnace of blazing fire. And he can rescue us from the power of you, the king. But if he does not rescue us, we want you as king to know we will not serve your gods or worship the gold statue you set up. Now, they're not being called upon here to deny the Lord. Just to add to their pantheon of gods, just, just one more. That's all. Just a compromise. Just for a few minutes, now and then, to acknowledge there is in this world other gods and bow down and worship them. Just a, just a, just a small compromise. That's what they've been asked to do. We have here, in the, in the, in the words of these three men, two, two confessions. One a confession about God and one about faith. Firstly about God. If the God we serve exists, and they mean by that, of course he does, but if he does, what follows? Surely if he exists, he can save us from the fiery furnace. That's, that's a no-brainer, isn't it? If he exists, if the God who made the earth the wind of the fire can save from the earth the wind of the fire, as he did with Jesus, didn't he? Who calmed the sea, walked on the waters, made bread and wine, bread and fish, of course he can. They say, our God wasn't designed by an artist, molded by a sculptor, encased by a goldsmith, erected by slaves to stand 90 feet high, deaf, dumb and impotent. Our God exists and he can do this. I watched Q&A some weeks ago, the one with with Peter Jensen on there, if you saw Peter on Q&A, and uh, Catherine... Deveni, one of our local atheists. Nebuchadnezzar comes to mind. Never mind. And um, she said, "If God exists, let Him show Himself." You hear that again and again? again? Mm-hmm. What do we say? Of course He can show Himself. Of course He can. For the God we worship exists. Then the great confession of faith. But whether we live or die, we won't serve your gods. Those great words, of, you know the story of you know, Polycarp, the great second century church father. It's a, oh, it's a great story. Age 90, brought before the arena, before the, uh, the governor. He came and the arena was full of people baying for his blood. And through the roar of the crowd, he heard the voice of God. Be strong, Polycarp, and play the man. And he's dragged before the governor who saw this old, old man and felt sorry for him. He said, Polycarp, respect your age. Take the oath and I'll let you go. Revile Christ. His reply is etched in history. He said, for 86 years I've been his servant and he's never wronged me. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? And on that day, he was not delivered 
from the fiery furnace but was killed I read of a man called C.R. Marsh who was a missionary in Algeria some years ago amongst Muslims again a great story preaching one night up in a, in a mosque which I think is pretty brave preaching in a mosque in a, a remote mountain town uh, came home one night after preaching down a dark alleyway two men jumped out pinned his arms behind his back put a knife at his side they said Mr. Marsh it's late at night you are far from home you could be gone for, for days and no one would miss you say the creed there is no God but Allah and Muhammad is his prophet or will kill you where you stand what would you say he said this you know I could say those words with my lips but I never mean them in my heart and you know that God looks upon the heart and with that they let him go one died one survived but both kept the confession we know how the great story ends Uh, actually death by roasting the fire was common back then if you read Jeremiah 29 this guy Nebuchadnezzar kills two false prophets by roasting them in the fire it was quite common now it's interesting too you you know the Old Testament in, in Hebrew except for Daniel which is largely in Aramaic. And after this, these events, as the Jews spread around the Greek-speaking world, the need came to put the Old Testament into Greek. It's called the LXX. In the Greek version of this chapter, someone's added a psalm. And a prayer. it's not there in the Hebrew, not there in the English, but it's there in the Greek version. The psalm's called the Song of the Three Young Men. Let me read, read a part of it to you. Deliver us according to thy marvellous works and give glory to thy name, O Lord. And let all them that do thy servants harm be ashamed. Let them be confounded in all their power and might and let their strength be broken. And let them know that thou art God, the only God, and glorious over the whole world. And the king's servants have put them in Cease not to make the oven hot with rosin, pitch, tow and small wood. So the flame streamed forth above the furnace 49 cubits and it passed through and burned those Chaldeans it found about the furnace. But the angel of the Lord came down into the oven together with Azariah and his fellows and smote the flame of the fire out of the oven. Then also they've added there a prayer called the prayer of Azariah or the prayer of Abednego that said this let them know that you are the Lord the only God who is glorious over all the world and it's a great story of their deliverance of this man this fourth man who appears in the fire and, and they, they, they walk out unscathed now let me just ask you do you believe that? that men stood in this blazing fire and just walked around untouched you know fires like you've burnt yourself on the stove do you believe it? Not not as a myth or some morality tale but do you believe it?
I said I worked in Pakistan uh, I, and for some years I taught at a school in northern Pakistan it's a school for missionary kids About most of the kids there are um, the kids of missionaries it's called Murray Christian School in northern Pakistan uh, about three months ago in August we, we, the school had the 10th anniversary of its attack by terrorists in the last 10 years during the war on terror 35,000 Pakistanis have been killed about 10 a week are killed in Pakistan in August 2002, an attempt was to add 200 more to that roll call. 200 missionary kids and missionary teachers. August the 5th, 2002. Six men walked along a road I've walked a thousand times. A road to the school. They kept the school under surveillance for two months. They trained in a terrorist camp, in an Al-Qaeda camp. Their bodies were wrapped in explosives. In their bags were enough grenades and Kalashnikovs to kill 150 kids aged 6 to 18 and 30 missionary teachers. They watched the school they knew at morning tea time at 11 o'clock all the kids went outside. They planned to attack at 11 o'clock. But just before then, dark clouds came over. There was a downpour and all went inside. They came at 11, they killed a guard at the gate, they killed a shopkeeper, spent then 15 minutes, which is quite a long time, that's about the length of this sermon so far, it's, 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 15 minutes is quite a long time, walked around a small campus trying to find victims to shoot. The school, the high school, is, is, is an old converted British Army church, that's what I used to teach, upstairs are some classrooms. And the kids hid upstairs under chairs. One teacher later wrote this. The sudden and shocking sound of automatic weapons found, its, found us taking refuge under the desks. Everyone was scared. Then a clear, high voice softly and confidently began singing. Our God is an awesome God he reigns from heaven above with wisdom power and love our God is an awesome God then a number who heard them said then I heard singing it was faint at first and then it became clearer it was while the shooting was going on it was really nice choir music coming from the rafters my friends said they heard it too. That's why I know there were angels in the rafters. The book about the events called, that's the title of the book, Angels in the Rafters. A missionary mum called Juliet was there that day and she ran into a terrorist face to face. His gun was pointed at her. As her eyes met his, he opened fire. She ran and ducked, the bullets whizzed by she said she felt bullets passing through her hair and her body. But something strange was happening. It was as though someone with metal armour was stopping the bullets from hitting her. She could hear the clinking sound of the bullets hitting a shield and saw them dropping by her feet. It jars when the school workers saw the terrorists coming but said, I quote, suddenly I felt as though someone had grabbed my shirt and I was being pulled into the maintenance shed. I didn't know what was happening, but the door was closed behind me. 
I looked around me, but there was nobody there. I don't know who pulled me, but I believe they saved my life. Another man called Latif said a similar thing. He was running away from the terrorists, didn't know which way to go. Then I saw two men dressed in white shavar kameez. You know, the shavar kameez, the kind of pyjama pants that, that they wear. They beckoned to me and said they would help me over the fence. One got down so that I could climb onto his back. The other held me over and I dropped down and turned to thank the two men, but they were no longer there. I didn't see them again. There's just a whole range of these incredible stories of deliverance that day. Six people died that day. Six school employees and guards. But not a hair on the head of a single child was touched. It's an amazing story. Now I know there are other stories too where God does not save like he did that day. But this I do know. Our God is an awesome God who saves in the power of the despot and the power of a terrorist and the power of a flaming fire. Do you believe that? Amen. That's a great story. Let me say three things about this story and how it applies to us. Honestly, I, I am a loyal Aussie. I love my country. I do, like you do. I'm a loyal Australian. But my commitment to this country is not total. It's not unquestioning. It is always contingent. I will sing our national anthem, but frankly, I don't like it. A land abounds in nature's gifts. No, it doesn't. It abounds in God's gifts. That's pure pentheism, Mother Nature. She gives us, well, she's a, a myth. It's God's gifts. But that's not my real problem. My popular anthem is these words. Of beauty rich and rare, in history's page at every stage, advance Australia fair. See that? Let's be, let's be the best in the world. That's why we love our sport. When our cricketers win, which is not looking too promising right now, when the Socceroos win, or the netballers win, or the Olympians win a gold medal, we win. And we advance as we become the best. Am I, am I making too much of this? Well, listen to the second chorus. It's more overt. Beneath our radiant Southern Cross, we'll tour with hearts and hands to make this Commonwealth of ours renowned of all the lands. We want to be the most famous was glorious, that's not particularly Christian. There is one kingdom only that should be renowned of all the lands. That's the kingdom of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So I'm a law Aussie, but not unquestioningly obedient. Secondly, I enjoy my sport, but I won't worship it. It'll never have first claim in my life. The preacher John Piper says, and I think this is profound, he says this, the greatest threat to hunger for God is not poison, but apple pie. He means, what will keep, keep folk from, from Monty Community Church on a Sunday morning? It won't be, I think, you'll find them down the Crown Casino gambling their savings away. They won't be having some immoral affair. Why aren't folk here on a Sunday? Well, because, frankly, it's such a nice day outside. What a great day for a picnic. 
or the family or the netball or Johnny's cricket on a Sunday morning. I've got to make a choice, haven't I? The saints or the cricket? What will I prioritise? Of all the dangers that Satan can do to us, when the Lord tells a parable of what keeps people from the banquet table of God, what's, what's the excuses they give why they cannot come? What do they say? I bought a field. Just out of Philip Island. Oh, for ministry purposes, you understand. I've married a wife. I saw, because we can't think about missionary work with a wife and kids, of course. I've bought a yoke of oxen. Oh, what a feeling. <laughs> you see, Piper says it's not, it's not feasting at the table of the wicked, but nibbling at the table of the word, world, which kills our passion for God, or Jesus. And it can be, these are good things. Family is a good thing. Sports are good things. It's not like a 90 foot idol. These are good things. But they can dampen our love for Christ. And it can be so subtle and so insidious. So I won't worship my, I'll enjoy my sport, but I won't worship it. And it won't have first claim on my life and my time and my family. Finally, scholars have debated who, who did Nebuchadnezzar, who was this fourth man? This son of man? Was it, was it Jesus before the incarnation? I don't think so. But three men walked in that tomb, as it were, and walked out unscathed. They were, as it were, I think, risen from the dead, as it were. But of course, 500 years later, another man would walk into a tomb who would not be rescued from the fiery furnace who would die, be crucified, buried and then three days later walk out of that tomb unscathed. I'm praying right now for five friends who are in the fiery furnace of cancer. Can God rescue them? Of course he can. He made the human body. He's made every cell. He governs every cell. Of course he can rescue them. He may, he may not. But shouldn't he rescue them? I know they'll walk out of that cancer one day into new life. I got a phone call a couple of weeks ago about a friend of mine I went to Bible college with. I was ordained with him, named Paul. Mid-50s, had an epileptic fit and, 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 was, and just died. Left a wife and three kids. A terrible tragedy. Heartbreaking. But as Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego walked out of that furnace and our Lord walked out of that tomb, Paul too will walk out of the bonds of death into paradise. Because Paul's confession is their confession, which, my dear friends, I know is our confession. If the God we serve exists, then he can rescue us from the furnace of blazing fire. And he can rescue us from the power of you, the king. But if he doesn't rescue us, we want you as king to know that we will not serve your gods or worship the gold statue you have set up.
Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the example of these faithful men. Thank you we serve a God who does have power over the terrorists and power over the fire and power over disease and power over death. They keep us, we pray, from being lured by the world. From giving to this nation or any nation an allegiance beyond what it warrants. Keep us, we pray, always making that great confession. We will serve only you and the Lord Jesus Christ who loved us and gave himself for us. Amen.